Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word uh, that is sufficient, that is our authority, that gives us all that we need for life and godliness. Uh, we're grateful that it is a word, a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. We're thankful that it makes the wise simple. We're thankful that uh, it rejoices the heart. We're thankful for the promises that if we meditate on a day and night, uh, that we will be spiritually successful and prosperous. And so I just thank you for the time here this morning. I pray that this would be a profitable study. I pray that we would be wise, uh, that we would be unified, that we would see the errors uh, and, and respond accordingly, that we would not be deceived by every wind and wave of doctrine uh, that comes our way. And I just uh, pray that you would... Um, be with each of our families. For those who have had children, uh, little ones in the last week or two, we pray that you bless their families for the Will Wordings and the Dudleys. And, and uh, I just pray that uh, for the others as well uh, who are getting ready to, uh, who are expecting that there would be uh, just health and safe deliveries. And, and I pray that each of their homes would be one in which they would uh, raise their children in the fear of the Lord. And we just uh, thank you for this time again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Matthew 16. We're just going to read 24 and 25 for now. Matthew 16, 24 and 25 out of the ESV. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The first resource we're going to be looking at is called Boundaries, when to say yes, how to say no, how to take control of your life. And it's been a, a popular book, and I'll explain why we're going to do this resource first. Uh, in just a little bit. But it is our goal over the next several weeks, months, we'll see how long it goes, to now look at some things, teachings uh, that, have, that are beginning to affect the church in our day. Not only books, not only we're going to look at, you know, we already mentioned, I think, the five love languages. We're going to look at uh, a, a book by Leslie Vernick. We're going to look at Enneagrams. We're going to look at um, things like suicide. Uh, it's becoming more and more acceptable for Christians to take their own life and still be called godly. And uh, there's lies like this creeping into the church that are devastating uh, the body of Christ. And, and you know, we're, we're in the midst of an ever-growing depraved culture, and that's being more and more exposed. And so we want to be wise. We want to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, as Scripture says. But we want to know what Scripture says. Because all these things are using Scripture to justify what they are teaching. And that will be the case here uh, in this book today. So this today, we'll get it started. Next week, we're going to look at more of the theology behind the book. And then finally, we'll look at the devastating consequences that have come as a result of those who have practiced this book. Uh, that is my goal. So we shall see. All right. Now, it's interesting that I read this passage because this passage is quoted in this book, one of hundreds of passages, to justify the idea that you need to protect yourself before you can minister to others. But is that what Jesus says here? That if you're going to follow me, you need to first protect yourself. You need to be a steward of all that you have first so that you can then go and live for others if you're going to follow me. Is that, is that what that text says? No, if you're going to save your life, you have to lose your life. And the, the very title here says how to take control of your life. All right, so uh, we don't know what all that's about yet. If you haven't read the book, I'm simply saying it's striking that one of the very passages they use to justify says the opposite. And these authors are very good at doing that. They're going to twist Scripture over and over and over again uh, to justify this idea of boundaries. So why would we pick this resource? Well, 
First off, it's scope of influence. This book has been around for about 30 years, maybe a little over 30 years. Uh, it has a long-standing, ongoing presence in the church, at least in many churches. Uh, it's sold millions of copies. Bound, there's boundaries for teens now. There's boundaries for kids. There's boundaries for spouses. There's boundaries for leaders, boundaries for dating. There's beyond boundaries. There's workbooks, studies, uh, and on and on it goes. And so it has a wide scope of influence. That's one reason. Uh, also, there is damage that's being done in an ongoing way for, from those who are practicing the advice and counsel coming from this book. That has infiltrated our own church. And we'll talk more about the relational difficulties probably in the last, more in the last week uh, when we talk about the, the relationships and, and what does it mean really to set boundaries and what's that look like. Uh, so that's another one. There's personal, we have stake in the game here. There, there's stake in the game because our church has been affected by it. Families have been affected by it. And it's done a lot of damage. Next, the word boundaries itself has crept in as acceptable usage in the church. Now, there's a way to use the word boundaries that's not necessarily unbiblical. And we'll talk about that later on. Uh, but the way that it's often being used is a direct result of this creeping in and, and then that word being used in a bad way. And so it becomes an acceptable form of relationship in the church, all right? Also, it poses as biblical teaching. And what we're going to see is through this book, over and over, dozens and dozens, hundreds of verses uh, are overlaid in this book with the underlying, of the underlying philosophy that the most important need that you have in life is to build boundaries. That's your most important need, all right? So, but it poses as biblical teaching. Taking control rather than yielding up our lives for God is what's stated, though. And since your happiness is the goal that the authors are trying to promote, then they're not going to emphasize suffering for the kingdom of God. They're not going to emphasize things that build up your faith. They're more about your feelings first and not your faith. They're more about uh, happiness and not holiness. Now, we like happiness and holiness. Uh, that's true. But, but what they are striving is to get you to be happy. And they have a way that they're going to do that. All right? Uh, the, they're psychologists, as we'll see. And as psychologists, the authors are going to shift the blame away from personal accountability and sin that would lead them to repentance. And instead, all of life is seen through creating boundaries. So all of life, we'll find out. Okay? So instead of taking any type of personal accountability, everything is seen as you need to create boundaries. That becomes what we are told to do. Okay? Also, sin is not the primary goal to, to cause us to grow and, and to be like Christ. Rather, our unmet needs are the focus of this book. So your needs, and as we're going to see, that's the driving force uh, of a lot of books. A lot of books coming our way today are all about unmet needs. And so the undiscerning reader will begin to see him or herself as a victim. The driving forces, but you, you are a victim. And it just permeates page after page in this book. Loving family members who... Sure, sin against you are now aggressors, abusers, boundary busters, and on and on it goes, uh, who are a threat to your happiness. And, and so that is how, when the reader's reading, everybody around the reader now is, is, is you know, crowding my space and crowding my happiness. And again, we'll talk about all that. Now, there's a caution here. There is real abuse. There is sexual abuse, there is verbal abuse, there's physical abuse, there is uh, emotional abuse, and, and on and on and on. And, and that's a real thing that needs to be dealt with. That's something that is real and that we can't take lightly. And, and so we want to be careful not to just lump every situation into the same situation. Those have specific ways of dealing. We deal with 
people who truly are abusers in a specific way. Sometimes that's very obvious. Sometimes that takes some time. But, but what happens here is everybody gets lumped into, if you crowd my space, if you go, break my boundary, you're one of these things. And only wise, discerning Christians understand boundaries is what's stated, okay? So I'm trying to paint the, the picture. I'm not, I, I don't believe I'm being unfair in any way, by the way. I've read through this book once and almost twice. And I have tried to be as objective as I can. The, the, where, what they do get right, you know, if you want to say if there's anything right is, yeah, relationships are messy, right? That is true. And you probably have people in your life right now that you would love to just immediately put a boundary between you and them. Now, this also doesn't mean that we don't separate from people, people who are sinning against us at times or who are challenging or, or there's a reason for that. But it's the motivations and it's how you see the situation that's going to dictate what is right and what is wrong. So who are our authors? By the way, has anybody here read the book? Okay. Bits of it? Okay. So a few of you. All right. Who's the authors? Number one, John Townsend. John Townsend is a business consultant. He's a leadership coach and he's a psychologist. This is how he advertises himself. He's written over 30 books, selling 10 million copies, including the New York Times best-selling boundary series, People Fuel, Leading from Your Gut, and The Entitlement Cure. And he speaks often to large organizations and leaders, and, and on and on and goes. Now, if you go to his website, what you will not find anywhere on his front page is the word God. You won't find it. Um, it's just not there that he doesn't advertise himself that way. Uh, now, if I haven't looked at every, you know, all the, all the other pages, but that front page has nothing to do with God and all his accomplishments as a life coach, uh, as an expert in what he's dealing with. Okay? So just something to take note of. That doesn't necessarily mean it's all bad, but it is something to take note of. Because what you don't see is any commitment to the Word of God. You don't see a desire to see people's souls uh, helped. It is primarily their happiness and their the experiences they're going through. The other author is Henry Cloud. He's an acclaimed leadership expert, a clinical psychologist, and New York Times best-selling author. His 45 books, including the iconic Boundaries, have sold nearly 20 million copies worldwide. He has an extensive executive coaching background and experience as a leadership consultant, devoting the majority of his time working with CEOs, leadership teams, and executives to improve performance, leadership skills, and culture. So, we have two coaches uh, who, who speak to businesses. He has spoken on CNN and Fox, so got, he's got that covered. Okay, uh, He is often asked to give his advice in these settings. Uh, he is well-respected in this world. But again, if you go to his website, you will not find the word God anywhere on the front page of his website. You might find the word church. I do think you find church, and that is his advertisement to bring in uh, mental help to church settings. That's it. Now, if you go to the Boundaries website, boundaries.me, you will also, this is their, their help, uh, their whole system of help, how they help people mentally. You will not find the word God on the front page of that either. And why am I saying that? Well, because these are not pastors who are focused on the Word, who are, who are striving to love you, love your soul, to build up your faith primarily. These are men who are life coaches who are helping you reach your goals, your desires. And that becomes evident in this book. And so their passion is to help you be happy by reaching your goals. And so just as just as, you know, you might hire a, a coach in the gym to, you want to reach a, a certain level of, you know, maybe a, you want to work out, you want to get in shape, and you have that coach come alongside you, and, and he or she helps you develop that and get to where you want to go. Well, that's how these guys look at their job. They're helping you go where you want to go, right? And, and on top of that, they are trained psychologists, which we're going to see uh, why that matters. All right, there's our two authors, Okay. Uh, and we just want to see. So no, no 
Nothing to indicate to us when they advertise themselves for all of their millions of people. By the way, Henry Cloud says he's helped over 150 million people. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people you're accountable for, uh, if that's true. So, so what do we do? What is a boundary? When they describe boundaries, what is it? Well, simply put, a boundary is a property line, right? That's simple. Uh, who owns it? Who controls it? And who is responsible for it? All right, so boundary line could be boundary line could be your skin. I think that's the first one they they point to. It could be words. It could be relationships, emotions, and that's the ones he's primarily dealing with in the book. Re- relationships and emotions. That's that's what this is going to go after. Uh, boundaries could be a lot of different things, but boundaries. The problem is, is that his his analogy is is that it, just like your yard. Okay, if you own your house and you have boundaries. Well, if your neighbor's tree is growing into your yard, invading your boundaries, and that tree falls over and it rots in your yard, well, guess who's now responsible for that? Well, it might be you, you know, because now you're dealing with your neighbor's problem and, and that gets messy, right? And so yet if you have your own boundaries, you get to do with whatever you want with your property. I mean, that, that's pretty wise, right? I mean, if you own a house and you own a yard, guess who gets to plant the garden in your yard? Well, you do. And that, that's, that's, yeah, that's what you get to do. You have freedom to do that. But according to him, what gets messy is the boundaries we're talking about are boundaries you really can't see. You can't, you can't draw, you know, hard and fast. You can't put tape on the ground or draw a line in the sand and these are boundaries that, that overlap, and it gets hard to see, you know, uh, how people relate to one another and how, you know, so on. So these are a little harder, and you need life coaches to help you through these boundaries, setting these boundaries and developing boundaries. And that's what this book is about. How do we develop those boundaries uh, for our life to help us achieve our goals, to help us deal with difficult people, who is not you, by the way, it's everybody else, okay? Just so you know. And if you are difficult, it's because of somebody else, right? So we're going to work through that, and we're going to... I am not exaggerating. I'm not exaggerating. So, but we are going to go through it. All right. So what I want to do first, because what is very important at any time we look at a Christian resource that is claiming to help believers, we need to know the theology behind what drives what their, their counsel, right? And so today I, I do want to start with a couple of areas. We'll take some quotes from the book. But let me just say that theology is few and far between in this book. There, there are some theological concepts uh, that we're going to talk about. Theological concepts almost come always at the end of the chapter, which is going to be telling. And I'll tell you why in a little bit. By the way, these guys are always the heroes of their own stories. Uh, if, if, if you came into them, they could tell you exactly what your problem was. And just by helping you see your boundaries, man, life has gotten way better. Um, you'll, you'll find that in here, but, um, so you will. So what we want to do is, is look at the theological construct that they have built this around right now. I'm also reading a book called feelings and faith. Okay. Here's a different one, uh, by Brian Boardman. We had Brian here at our conference last year. Let me just, uh, give you chapter one as we deal with our feelings, the character of God. Okay. And we can start going through chapter two, the character of the word chapter three, a biblical anthropology of the emotions and on and on it goes. You see, you see how he's setting the tone because like A.W. Tozer said, the most important thing that what we think about God is the most important thing about us. What we think most important thing that we think. And that is, that's what drives everything. That's what drives our relationships in here. What we think about God starts it all. All right, so that becomes very important. I also, lest you are, if you're new here, and maybe you go, well, yeah, doctrine, 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 and I know that doctrine is important, but right now I'm having problems in my marriage. I'm having problems with one of my children. And what I need is help dealing with that first. So I wanted to read an account, uh, just tell you a little bit about the account, uh, and then just read a little portion of it, 
and be reminded of why doctrine is so important, why theology when it comes to resources is so important. Uh, Ichabod Spencer lived, born in the late 1700s, lived into the mid-1800s. He, he wrote a, an account of all of his deathbed, uh, those that had been in his church, and he sat with as they died. And he wrote down the accounts of what they said uh, before they died. And th- he chronicled one family that showed up at his church. They were in their 30s. They were well-to-do. They had pretty much everything they wanted. And, you know, they came in, they sat down, they started to get involved in the church. But he noticed very quickly that the wife was not interested. And not only was she not really interested, she seemed a little bit obstinate, and he didn't know why. But every week, it seemed that that was the case. And, and so he said, whether this dissatisfaction was personal towards myself or had reference to the congregation, I could not even at first conjecture. In her youth, she had been educated in another denomination whose forms of worship differed from our own in some degree, and I deemed it probable that she did not feel quite at home among us. And so I respected her the more on this account. And so as time went on, he, he, he began to realize that there were certain things that she didn't like. And what she didn't like was that he preached doctrine. She didn't find that to be real helpful. And so he said that um, after about three years, he said, I... I, I began to, to realize this. And what she didn't like was those things called doctrinal, such themes as human sinfulness, divine sovereignty, justification by faith in Christ, simply, regeneration, not by baptism, but by the Holy Spirit aside from baptism, the unbending nature of the law of God, the justice of God and the condemnation of sinners, and the obligation resting upon sinners to repent especially because God proffers to them the aids of the Holy Spirit. These doctrines did not appear to be acceptable to her. All right, so you have, you have this, you have the things he, he finally, okay, what's bothering her? Well, it's these doctrines, because uh, doctrine to her didn't seem real palatable and helpful in her situation. Over time, he begins to notice a change in her countenance. And what she doesn't know is she's not far from death. Uh, she is not going to live much longer. And, so, she, and so, so he notices this. She begins to be very positive and responsive to the preaching. And then she finds out that she's going to die. And so he, he comes to her. Um, and just want to read a portion. And I think what she says is very helpful for us today. At uh, first, he goes in. She's in great pain. She's screaming in pain. But she said, I, it's not because I'm dissatisfied. I, it's just the pain is driving me this. I, I believe and I accept what God has brought into my life. Christ will sustain me. Um, he's, and, and she said, I have something to tell you when you come in again. So the next day, he goes in. And is, she says, and he says, after a little while, to muster her remaining strength and gather up her thoughts for what she called something particular She said to me, speaking with great effort and slowly and solemnly, I wish to thank you for instructing me as you have done out of the scriptures. I hope you will continue to press upon your people as you are accustomed to do the Bible itself. The forms of religion are nothing. Since I have been sick, it has been a great comfort to me to go to the Bible. I can remember the chapters I have heard you read in the church and the texts, and the doctrines I have heard you preach, and now they comfort me. Many a time when I've gone to church, I should have been pleased, I suppose, to hear you preach some fanciful, fanciful sermon, as some ministers I know do. But you would come out with some scripture doctrine and urge us to examine the Bible and see if these things were not so. And it has done me a great deal of good. I think, it has been, I think it has been the means, one great means of fixing my faith just on the Scriptures, so that now I am comforted by them. If you had not done so, I never should have had this strong faith in my God. I might have got it, perhaps in some other way, if you had not preached so and insisted upon the Scriptures so much. But it seems to me that I never should. And I want you to keep on so, and God will bless you in it. I want you to continue to urge upon the people as you used to do the Bible truths and doctrines. They will not all like it any better than I did at first. 
But I hope the Lord will instruct them to hear these great truths. They have done me good, great good. They comfort me now. Some ministers talk about other things, such as the lives of men. But that does not do me any good, except the lives of those mentioned in the Bible. Your preaching led me to examine God's word to see if the things you preached were so there. And I found them so. I thank you for it all. I hope you will urge it still upon the people to turn to the Bible and find the truths you preach there. The Bible is enough. It's precious to me. It contains all I want. I hope you will not be discouraged if the people do dislike some of them. Your humbling, solemn way. Keep on. They may learn better as I did. And they will have precious promises and precious doctrines to lead them. And not care about forms and ceremonies or speculations and fancies. And so the next time he saw her, she said, I am to die very soon. I'm ready to die. And, uh, and she goes on to confess her comfort and her walk with Christ. And I, again, as we discuss resources, there's nothing more important in the theology that drives these resources. That biblical doctrine is what's going to help us. And, and so if a, if a resource has good doctrine then it's going to be a lot more helpful in our personal relationships. If it doesn't, then it's going to lead us astray. And we don't want to be as those who are carried away by every wind and wave of doctrine. All right, so that's where we're at. So let's take total depravity first, all right? There is one little, one little paragraph on total depravity, and I'm going to read it to you. And then we're going to go back and I'm going to explain the context in which it's set in, all right? Total depravity, here we go. Uh, after 20 pages of psychology in this chapter, uh, how boundaries are developed, we get this little theological construct. It says, our own sinfulness. Last page, you've got to turn the page, by the way, and it's just by itself. We also contribute to our own boundary development problems by our own depravity. Depravity is what we inherited from Adam and Eve. It is our resistance to being creatures under God, our resistance to humility. It's a refusal to accept our position and a lust for being omnipotent and in charge, not needing anyone and not accountable to anyone. Our depravity enslaves us to the law of sin and death, from which only Christ can save us. Okay, well, you know, I mean, there's some... There are some things there, and I, you know, it's not a complete, de complete definition, but it's fuzzy, so we don't know fully what he means by all those things by just reading that. But let's go back now. What I want to do is it's explain to you what the whole chapter is about, uh, because this fits into the scheme of what he's teaching. So chapter four, how boundaries are developed. Let me give you the subtitles here. How boundaries are developed. Um, well, I'd have to go through here. Let me just do it this way, just for sake of time, because I have it here. Um, you know people like Jim, right? Jim? Let me read you about Jim. All right? Because I'm sure you know somebody like him, and, and this is how he starts the chapter, and it'd be good to kind of understand what he's saying. Jim had never been able to say no to anyone, especially to his supervisors at work. He'd moved up to the position of operations manager in a large firm. His dependability had earned him the reputation of Mr. Can-Do. But his kids had another name for him, the Phantom. Jim was never home. Being Mr. Can-Do meant late nights at the office. It meant business dinners several nights a week. It meant weekends on the road, even after he'd promised the kids fishing trips and outings to the zoo. Jim didn't like being absent so much, but he had justified it to himself saying, this is my contribution to the kids by way of giving them the good life. His wife, Becca, had rationalized the dadless dinners by telling the children and herself, this is dad's way of telling us he loves us. And she almost believed it. Finally, however, Becca had had enough. One night, she sat Jim down on the couch in the family room and said, I feel like a single parent, Jim. I miss you for a while, but now all I feel is nothing. Jim avoided her eyes. Honey, I know. I know. He replied, I'd really like to say no to people more, but it's just so hard to. I found someone you can say no to, Becca broke in, me and the kids. 
This did it. Something broke deep within Jim, a sense of pain, of guilt and shame, of helplessness and rage. The words tumbled out of his mouth. Do you think I like being like this? Always giving in to others? Do you think I enjoy letting my family down? Jim paused, struggling for composure. All my life it's been this way, Becca. I've always feared letting people down. I have this part of me. I hate my life. How did I get like this? How did Jim get like this? He loved his family. The last thing he wanted was to neglect his most precious relationships, his wife and children. Jim's problems didn't start the day he was married. They developed during his early significant relationships. They were already a part of his character structure. How do boundary abilities develop? That's the purpose of this chapter. Duh. We hope you'll be able to gain some understanding of where your own boundaries started crumbling or became set in concrete and how to repair them. Then he quotes David. Here we go. David prayers to God. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And then here we go. God's desire is for you to know where your injuries and deficits are, whether self-induced or other-induced. Ask him to shed light on the significant relationships and forces that have contributed to your own boundary struggles. The past is your ally in repairing your present and ensuring a better future. Now, where would he get a line like that? The past is your ally in helping you ensure a better present and future. Does that come from the Bible? Is that, is that biblical wisdom? Is that... And by the way, the whole book is wrapped around this, so I'm not just taking one example out of context. And I'm being a little sarcastic because of the devastation of his teaching. So, uh, but, I, but where does it come from? Well, it comes from because they use the very words that Freud and, and Carl Jung used. They don't even hide it. Uh, as we'll see, they used psychology, that psychology, psychoanalysis, that Freud built his whole uh, counsel on. So listen to this uh, by Freud. This comes out of Psychobabble uh, by Richard Gantz. It says, Freud believed that therapy could help patients know the origins of their behaviors, thereby gaining personal awareness and understanding. But in reality, this type of therapy accomplishes much more. It affirms a concept that sinful human beings universally hold dear. They are not responsible for their actions. Someone else is to blame. By placing the responsibility for their behavior on their parents, environment, childhood, trauma, the unconscious, the primitive urges, patients are permitted, even encouraged, to assume a victim mentality. They are never confronted with their personal responsibility for their behavior, but must wade through years of analysis at horrendous cost to discover what in their past makes them behave the way they do. Well, that's going to be the whole gist of this book. You are not responsible for your sin. Oh, they'll say it here and there. They'll sprinkle it in. And, you know, you've got to still do this. You've got to still do that. The gist of the book is you're not responsible. And we're going to shift that to unmet needs, and away from your sin, so because you can't deal with your sin in the present until you understand your past. Uh, and that's Freudianism. Uh, that's what Freud, Freud would do, lay you on the couch, right? And begin to give his, he would hear what you had to say, and, and then begin to go back into your past, and pretty soon, whoa, you mean, I, you mean I'm promiscuous because my dad didn't love? Of course. I, I should have known that. And that'll be later on in the book. Now, does that influence us? Does a dad's love for his daughter and the way he shows affection to his daughter influence? You better believe it does. Does, it, does the daughter, is the daughter then responsible for her own actions when she, in her sin, if she goes out and, and is promiscuous? Yes, she is. Or, you know, Kevin. Kevin, we'll talk about in a minute, who, who never got out of the practicing phase, and he's a 40-year-old, basically 8-year-old. And he loves to date younger girls. And he's tan. He's all these things. Well, is, is this guy responsible for his behavior? Well, of course not. His parents never taught him right on and on. That's what we're building in this before we even get to total depravity. Okay, so let me, let's go, let's use the psychological terms that they build this chapter on. 
In this chapter first, the best, the first step in developing boundaries is bonding. Okay, and a lot of these are, there's truth to all these concepts, by the way. I'm not, there's not like none of this holds true. There ought to be bonding between a mother and her child. That's important, right? And, and between families, very important. But then a statement is made, our deepest need, our deepest need is to belong, to be in a relationship. Now, is that a true statement? We'll see how he defines that. But then, because he's grounding his whole book in the character of God, that's the statement in the book. Here we go. Like God, our most central need is to be connected. When God said that even in his perfect universe, it wasn't good for the man to be alone, he wasn't talking about marriage, he was talking about relationship. Other people outside ourselves to bond with trust and go for support. So certain needs, he says, have to be met before I can do what is right. There's the gist. And he says, when we are not secure that we are loved, we are forced to choose between two bad options. Is that true? If you're not certain that you're loved, are you forced now between bad options? Is that like, are you unable to do what's right in the present? No, you are. Not only that, does God have a need? No, we're going to get to the doctrine of God probably next week. It's horrendous because he starts with man and he works up to a God that's just like us. And uh, that's what happens. That's the problem. That's why a good biblical book will start with the character of God. Build its way down, right? So, okay, let's keep going. I don't have, what time do you end, Norman? Now? Huh? Uh, 25. 25. Yeah, maybe 30. We'll see. <laughs> All right. Uh, the next step in our chapter is, so then he begins to build through a, a psychological construct by Carl Jung called individuation. Okay, he doesn't even use a different term. He uses Jung's term. Now, Carl Jung was an occult, occultist. He, was a Buddha, he, he dabbled in Buddhism and Hinduism. He was Freud's prize pupil uh, because he claimed to be a Christian at first, and Freud needed that input into Christianity as a Jew, he, you know, there was anti-Semitism going through the land, and he needed a Christian to buy into his, his psychotherapy. Uh, so Jung comes up with his own that what life is about is finding the collective conscious, collective unconscious. And basically, we in here and throughout the whole world have a collective unconscious. And mo- things like mother, things like Jesus, they enter into our collective conscious and uh, un- from our unconscious to our conscious. And, and they bind us all together. I mean, that's, that's kind of what happens. So our job then is to find what that is. All of life is to find what that is. And, and then we, that's how we live our life. And, and it's been called in modern days, finding our authentic self, right? Finding our true self. That's what life is about. And, and so as parents, what's your major job? Helping your children what? Find their true self, right? That's what, that's what you're really called to do, as we're going to see, uh, by, their, by this book's boundaries uh, that they want you to develop. Okay, emotional. There's another term here, psychological term, emotional object constancy. That is an internal sense of belonging and safety. Let me read page a little bit of page 67, because what happens here is uh, you have... Um, because what he's going to do, again, is very fascinating. Where am I at? Page 67. All right. So first is bonding, and we're working towards symbiosis, okay? That's that mutual beneficial relationship where mother and, and baby benefit each other. That's early on. They're benefiting each other, okay? They're meeting each other's needs. But then the ultimate goal of mother's being there is a state called emotional object constancy, Object constancy refers to the child's having an internal sense of belonging and safety, even away from the presence of the mother. Now, is it good for a, for a, a child? Is it important for a child to have a mother nearby and, and it does help develop children? Absolutely. Yes, of course it does. Um, that, that's a God-given instinct and, and behavior. Uh, all those experiences of constant loving pay off in a child's inner sense of security. It has been built in. Now, here's, here's what it, he does. Object constancy is referred to in the Bible. Are you ready? You want to know where this is at? Turn to Ephesians 3.17. Ephesians 
where you find object, emotional object constancy. Now, this is a direct quote. By the way, what he will do throughout this book is he will quote scripture with quotation marks in the reference. Then he will, uh, he will also quote a whole verse, change one word, don't put quotation marks by it, but still put the reference. And so you think that you're actually, you know, you can subtly think, well, that's what the scripture says until you look up every single translation and not one translation says that. Fascinating. So here we go. Uh, Ephesians 3.17. I'm, I'm in Galatians. That might be the problem. Why I don't see emotional object constancy. Um, here's Paul's prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly. Well, number one, we're going to find out in this book that God will never violate your boundaries. Never. Okay? Unfortunately, Ephesians is all about God violating your boundaries. Uh, right? So, um, but is that what this is about? Is that what that text is about? Okay, well, um, you know, love and, and, you know, we are bonded in Christ. But is that the point of this passage? Well, no, it's not. Uh, your faith, growing in your faith, your faith being strengthened in the love of Christ, seeing the, the, the glories and the blessings that believers have in Christ, that is what this is about. Why? So that you can glorify Christ in the end. Now, if you want to start, you know, well, this could mean this and this could mean that. The problem is, is that, that he does this so often that it's all read through the idea of boundaries. This text is about boundaries. And I can't read the whole book. You, by the time you get to this point, everything's read through that lens. Okay? All right. So, uh, let me just see if there's anything else before we end. Um, so individuation is trying to find your authentic self, your true self, your identity. Um, I'm going to skip more of Carl Jung. Uh, let me give you the three phases of individuation, just so you understand as we move towards depravity. First, the hatching phase. This is the five to ten months of exploration. You know, when your little guy is, is you know, his eyes are wide open and he's looking around and and he, this is his hatching. He is hatching. Uh, and if you scroll down past cockroaches and, and owls, and you will under, you'll get to hatching, the hatching phase. Uh, next is practicing phase, 10 to 8 months of leaving mom behind, exploring, putting forks in light sockets, and trying to walk downstairs. And then, re, and then uh, you have the reproachment phase. Reproachment phase is... Basically, it's, a, it's going back to mom uh, because they realize that they have to have that kind of deal. So, and so I guess I'll have to end here because we're, we're done. Uh, here's, here's one other thing that he does. Okay. It's every turn to Proverbs 7, 7. If you're reading Proverbs 7, 7, We read this, start at six, for at the window of my house, I have looked and through my lattice, I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near a corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight and evening at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart and on and on. What is this young man's problem? What, what is his problem? According to Scripture, as we're reading that. Yeah, putting himself in the path of sin and temptation, right? He, he has not become mature. Now, whose, whose fault does Scripture attribute that to? Himself, right? Do you see anything that says, uh, I saw a young man whose mom and dad um, didn't let him explore his boundaries and... And the damage done now, because here's, here's what he's going to say in the book. Um, 
Here we go. Uh, where are we at? Sorry. Okay. So he talks about Derek. Derek is that, that young man that, that is like 40, and he's got a nice tan face, and he dresses like a 15-year-old, and he dates young girls, right? And, you know, he's really, he thinks he's really cool, and, and, and he is uh, sleeping with all these girls. And, and you would think, well, yeah, this, guy, this guy's got some sin issues, right? Well, no. As a matter of fact, you find out that's not the problem. The problem was is that Derek, during this period when he should have been hatching and experiencing these things, which usually lasts 10, 18 months, or I'm sorry, the practicing, because he's still in the practicing phase, um, the difference between hatching and practicing is radical. While the hatching baby is overwhelmed by this new world and still leans a great deal on mother, the practicing child is trying to leave her behind. The newfound ability to walk open opens up a sense of omnipotence. Toddlers feel exhilaration and energy, and they want to try everything, including walking down steep stairs, putting forks in electric sockets, and so on. People like Derek, this 40-year-old man, who are stuck in this stage can be lots of fun, except when you pop their bubble about their unrealistic grandiosity and their irresponsibility. Then you become like a wet blanket. Proverbs 7-7 describes the youth stuck in the practicing stage. I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men a youth who had no sense. Now listen, this young man has energy, but no impulse control. Now where do they get impulse? Who taught impulse? You're based off urges and impulses. Freud, right? That is right out of Sigmund Freud, by the way. Okay, this young man has energy, but no impulse control, no boundaries on his passions. He becomes sexually promiscuous, which often happens to adults who are caught in this phase. And he ends up dead. Till an arrow pierces his liver, here's a quote of scripture again, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. Practicers feel they'll never be caught, but life does catch up with them. But here is the thing. At the end, he turns it on mom and dad. He's not, he's not responsible for this because when practicing infants, um, need, what they need most from parents is a responsive delight in their delight, exhilaration at their exhilaration, and some safe limits to practice. Good parents have fun with toddlers who jump on the bed. Poor parents either quench their children's desire by not allowing any jumping or they set no limits, blah, 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 blah. Um, and any, on and on it goes. And what we'll talk about is anger is the friend of this, in this phase of reproachment. Ownership, it is good for your children to tell you mine. No, these are good things. And what happens is, is what? You, because you're, you are suppressing their boundaries in their child development. Child development is about individuation. You are quenching them from finding their true self. And so all the Bible verses are all fit into that framework. And so did you see any, does Derek have any accountability for what he did? No, he's a victim. Mama and daddy didn't teach me. You know, they, they quenched my, uh, you know, my enthusiasm. They told me no when I wanted to put something in the light socket. They, and that's what, that's what all this becomes. And as ludicrous as it sounds, it's, it's, it's destroying. Now, that's just one side of it. That's, that is just one little example. Because now you get through all of, this, all of this psychology, and you end the chapter with depravity. Now, he, he mentions one depravity one time earlier in the chapter. Sorry, I'm not ending like I said. I, I didn't set good boundaries. I need to do a better <laughs> job. So. Um, so in the middle of this, when he's talking about that they should be able to say my, mine, and me, okay, and he always, of course, I mean, should you teach your children to say no to a child predator? Okay, I, right? We should do that. I, I hope you're all right. But is your overbearing, is the overbearing mom who tells her child no a child predator or a abuser? No, but that's what you're going to read into this by the time you're done. Um, so he does mention depravity one time in the chapter. Here we go. He says, those that try to tell their kids not to say mine, my, and me when they want to hold their doll say, well, that old sinful nature is rearing its ugly head in that little girl. The parents will remark with their friends, we're trying to help her share in lovers, but she's caught up in that selfishness we all have. This is neither accurate nor biblical. The child's newfound fondness for mine does have its roots in our innate self-centeredness. Okay, yeah, yeah, part of the sinful depravity in all of us. 
that he wants, blah, blah, blah. However, this simplistic understanding of our character doesn't take into consideration the full picture of what being in the image of God truly is. Well, you know what being in the image of God truly is? It's saying, mine. My life is mine. I protect myself first. Then I'll, if I decide to love you, if I decide to love you, if I decide to do these things, then I'll do that. But I, but I have to be a good steward, the book says, of my life, and I have to take ownership. That's responsibility, right? I've got to be responsible for my life before I can live for others. Now, that's just the start. Depravity is probably the closest thing that they get right because once you read that definition again, depravity, you read it back into that chapter, it means nothing. In fact, what it does is it puts you in control because I didn't even go over what biblical depravity is. Biblical depravity is you're tainted to your core in every part of you. And you don't have the ability to choose for yourself. So that is, that is as you begin to read this book, that is what happens. So, um, and, and it's just a start. So next week, we're going to look at the theology of God in the book, The Theology of Forgiveness, and some other things where he equates the Bible with 12-step programs. Uh, which they're on equal footing, right? I mean, hey, either read your Bible or go to a 12-step program. Either one will help you. So, um, so it's things like this that as you begin to read in the book that begin, you begin to see, wow. And then we'll end on what's the fruit of this council. All right, any questions? Sorry, I dumped a lot on you, but I can only dump a little bit. I'm only taking little portions. But rest assured that about every example that I read is just over and over and over throughout the book. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would continue to give us wisdom. And even, even as uh, I, I think about this resource and I think about the devastation that it does, and I pray that I will not make light of it in an inappropriate way. I, I pray that, that the teaching would be seen as foolish, that the, the teaching would be seen with misrepresenting Scripture, and misrepresenting your plan for us, and ultimately taking us and turning us away from the cross. And I just pray for our families. I pray that we do wrestle in our relationships, and we are it, our homes sometimes are difficult. And so I pray that you would give us wisdom, and, and that we would repent where we need to repent. And I, I pray that you would give us grace in these areas. But I pray that our first and foremost desire would be to honor and glorify you, to love those you have put around us and, and to show Christ to them first. And uh, I just pray that we would not be deceived in looking into our past to think that we sin today because of what somebody else did to us in the past. I do pray for those who have truly been, truly been victims or are victims in here. That is, they are caught up in by others who are abusing them. And I pray that even in these difficult situations, that you grant them grace and wisdom and endurance and that sin would be dealt with and that you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.